0: Will you turn with me, please, to the second chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. Uh, I think I ought to explain before we get into this passage that uh, I am not at all pro-abortion. Uh, I believe that abortion is a violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. I believe it involves the taking of a human life. I have been on record for some time uh, that uh, that's my belief. I have written columns about the what I consider to be the terrible evil of abortion in our country, and I have a little booklet put out by Discovery Publishing in which I argue from Psalm 139 that that emerging life is uh, human life. Uh, I do, however, disagree with the methodology of Operation Rescue. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry that this, this matter of my belief about abortion has been mixed in with the matter of methodology because it muddies the whole question. Uh, my concern is with civil disobedience as a way of making a statement. I believe in civil dif- disobedience under certain circumstances. Uh, I don't have time this morning to spell it out. If you're interested, I have a paper that I did for the police department. The article that I wrote was an extract from part of that uh, paper. Uh, I argue that uh, Scripture teaches us that under certain circumstances, when we ourselves are forced into the question of whether we will obey God or man, then we must obey God. And I tried to make my case. Uh you may disagree but that's all right. My my concern is just with the methodology and I wanted to assure people who don't know me that I'm not at all pro abortion. Some of you may have seen the sign out front and uh, it distresses me not because I care what people think of me but because it confuses the whole issue. I learned long ago if you're going to write columns and hang it out there you're going to get criticized. That's all right. I expect that. If you have any question uh, don't feel, I guess my point is don't feel don't feel bad about me. I'm okay. Okay. Uh, if you have any questions about the uh, about my position on Operation Rescue, I'd be glad to talk it over with you and give you the full paper that I wrote for the uh, for the police. Uh, enough said. Let's look at John two. We're embarking on a new series this morning on the miracles of Jesus. And what I would like to do is uh, look at them from a little different uh, perspective than perhaps you have viewed them in, in the past. The way they are normally viewed uh, is that they are what we might describe as occasional manifestations of the power of God. I say occasional because no one believes that Jesus did miracles all the time. Most of his activities were ordinary activities. They were the sort of things that human beings uh, do on a regular basis. But here and there, occasionally, at least 36 times that we know from the Gospels and perhaps more, uh, there were more occasions on which he worked miracles, he did do something extraordinary. And the response was wonder and amazement. In fact, one of the terms used for miracles is, is that they were wonders. They're described as signs and miracles and wonders, in that they elicited the response of uh, of amazement. And he did indeed do some amazing things. He served lunch to uh, five thousand people from five loaves and two fishes. He ordered a dead man out of the tomb. He shouted down a squall. There's amazing, amazing, remarkable things that uh, that Jesus did, and these things we can see as as a flash of deity. Uh, I I love the analogy that, that John uses of our Lord. He describes him as God who has come to pup tent with us. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made manifest and dwelt among us. And the word that he uses for dwelling is the word for tenting. He tented with us. That's a description of his humanity. And from time to time, the wind would blow and the tent would flap and you would see flashes of his deity. Uh, and that's, uh, that's clearly in the Gospels. But the approach that I would like to take to the Gospels is to see them a bit differently. And in order to introduce the subject, I want to start with a uh, kind of a homely illustration and then uh, amplify on that illustration. When I was in college, I used to work uh, uh, in the summertime up in Colorado, at least the last two summers that I was in school. worked on the Tossig Ranch up in the Middle Park area of Colorado. Uh, quite by coincidence, uh, Claudia Milhoff knows the Tossigs real well. And uh, I came to love those people. I uh, went up uh, at the end of each summer to help them put up hay and uh, the first day I was up there, Jim Tossick took me out to the uh, out to his barn. I, I've forgotten now uh, what the purpose was. Ostensibly, it was uh, perhaps to do some work. But what he wanted to do was to show me how strong he was. And uh, on the floor of the barn, in in, in the hay, was a uh, piece of railroad rail about that long. And he said, uh, "See if you can pick that up." You know how unwieldy a piece of rail would be, and And you know, all kids think they're, they're strong. And I went over and tried to pick the thing up and I wrestled it up about knee high and finally got it up to my waist. The thing must have weighed about 150 or 160 pounds. And I finally dropped the thing and, and uh, Jim walked over and he put his hands on it and cleaned it to his chest and just pressed it slowly overhead. And I said, wow, that was, that was a wonder for me. Now I don't know what Jim was trying to prove. But uh, it, he certainly made a statement to me that this is a very, very strong man. But it didn't elicit anything but wonder. It didn't uh, provoke any love in me for Jim. I'll tell you what it did, though. A couple of days later, I was mowing in a field right next to the barn, and uh, the Tossigs had a large uh, gasoline tank up on pipe legs. It held about 200 gallons of, of gasoline so you could fuel the vehicles without going into the barnyard and I was mowing into the corner of the field, and I was uh, accustomed to a side-mount mower. That's what we had at home, and the Tossigs had a trail-mount mower, and I had one, they had one of these cheater knobs on the steering wheel, and I was probably was smarting off and came into the corner and spun this thing around. That mower cutter blade came around, just took the legs right off from under that tank, and it dropped on the ground and split in half, and about 200 gallons of gasoline went into the ground. And I knew I was in big trouble. <laughs> but uh, what, what amazed me was the response of all of the Tossigs. Uh, Jim realized that it was an accident, and he gave me a little lecture on uh, how to handle a trail mount more, but he didn't climb all over my frame. And what I saw was forgiveness and understanding and patience with a, with a young college student, and it's that that evoked my love for the, for the Tossigs. Now that's what I want you to see from our, our studies of these, uh, of these miracles. The miracles are not so much about power, as they are about about love. Because God knows that uh, power itself does not elicit a a response of love. There was nothing about Mount Sinai that made Israel love God more. They stood at the foot of the mountain. They saw the lightning strike. The summit of the mountain, they heard the thunder roll, they saw the mountain shook. They felt it shook a shake underfoot, but uh, it didn't make them love God uh, more. Furthermore, power can always be explained away. Jesus' miracles were almost almost always worked on behalf of those who already believed in him, because the miracles themselves uh, didn't seem to compel belief. It didn't foster faith in in people, they, they had their own way of explaining the miracles away. When the man born blind was brought into the presence of the Pharisees and he was quizzed about what had happened to him, his, his testimony was, oh, I don't know how he did this, all I know is that I used to be blind and now I can see, here was irrefutable, hard, rock-solid evidence that Jesus had worked a miracle and they explained it away and tried to run the man out of town. When Lazarus uh, rose from the dead, there's no question about his death. He was stone-cold dead. He had been in that tomb for three days, and he awakened from death, and he walked out of that door. And the response of the, of Jesus' detractors was to try to kill him off again. Uh, no, the, the miracles themselves, if they're viewed solely in terms of manifestations of power, don't elicit faith. There has to be something more, and the something more, as I see it, is that they are manifestations of the character and the love of God. In other words, the miracles are are about God and what He is like. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, I like the way uh, Phillips translates that first line of the Gospel of John, In the beginning was the Word. He says, In the beginning God expressed himself. Jesus was the pure expression of the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks, then listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said, I, I never say anything on my own. I only say what the Father says. He listened to the Father, and then he spoke the mind of the Father. The attitudes of Jesus, or the attitudes of God, the way he treated sinners, the way he treated the sick, the way he treated the down and out, the way he treated men, the way he treated women, are all reflections of the way God treats all of those classes of, of humanity. If you want to see what God's attitudes are, then just... Just consider the attitudes of Jesus. And if you want to know what, what God is doing in the world, then just uh, watch the doings of Jesus. Jesus said, my Father is working and I work. What, whatever I see the Father doing, that's what I do, he says. In fact, the miracles are, are nothing more or less than speeded up versions of the miracles which God is working every day in life, which we're inclined to overlook because they're so commonplace. Almost all of them are, are simply replications. They're, they're duplications, miniatures, cameos, vignettes, whatever you want to call them—little pictures of God at work. And you look at the miracles, and you say, "That's what God is doing around us all the time." He's turning rain into into wine. He's turning grain into into something that we can something that that, that feeds and fuels our bodies. He's he's doing that constantly, but we don't notice it because it's so commonplace. So, you see what i 'm saying is you look at these miracles, I want you to see them not so much as manifestations of the power of God. They are that, but they are more than that. they are manifestations of god 's care and his love and and, 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 and and his concern for us as as human beings now let 's look at the uh, at the first miracle and this this is by the way the first of Of Jesus' miracles. Uh, There is a second century uh, document, uh, actually a collection of documents called the Gospel of the Infancy of Jesus, most of which has been lost, but there are portions of it uh, available to us today. Uh, A bizarre sort of thing. No one takes it seriously. It has no apostolic authority. Uh, It's late. It came much after the uh, Gospels, uh, 150 years later. Uh, And one of the... One of the things that would strike you right away as you read it is how, how dissonant it is. How it, it's not in accord with our Jesus' way of doing things. It just jars you when you read it. Uh, it depicts Jesus as a child, uh, almost like the neighborhood genie. He was always doing tricks for his little friends, getting them out of uh, trouble and, and amusing them by making birds out of clay and, and clapping his hands and the birds fly away. And on one occasion, a neighborhood woman treated one of his little friends unkindly, and so he put a curse on the woman, and she fell in a well and crushed her skull, which is so unlike uh, our Lord or or Jesus walking into a town as a child and the idols in town crumbling, all the idols in in towns, that sort of thing, just bizarre, dissonant uh, reports that uh, that really do not fit. That's just not the way our Lord is. He did no miracles until this first miracle. The Bible says it clearly. This was the first of the miracles, which tells us that uh, the disciples he had followed him up to this point apart from the miracles. They saw something about about him that attracted them apart from his uh, his wonder working. All right, let's read the uh, let's read the chapter at least uh, the first 11 verses of the chapter. John two one. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. John's report up through these uh, first chapters is chronological. He starts with the witness of John to Jesus, and then the account of Jesus gathering his first six uh, disciples, James, John, Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, or the one that later was called Bartholomew. These were the first six. And then in chapter 2, we're told that uh, there was a wedding in king of Galilee on the third day and uh, the mother of Jesus was there perhaps she was the uh, hostess for this wedding and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding and when the wine gave out the mother of Jesus said to him they have no wine and Jesus said to her woman what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some off now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine... And did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. Uh, John doesn't report what the bridegroom said, but he may well have said, We will serve no wine until it's time. Verse 11, this uh, beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jewish weddings uh, were something else back then. They still are today. Uh, Back in those days, an engagement lasted for a full year. It's much more binding than our engagements here in the West. It was considered uh, tantamount to a marriage broken only by divorce. And at the end of that one-year period, the bridegroom gathered all of the fri- all of his friends and all of the uh, people that were invited to the party, and he and his entourage would go through the streets. In this case, the city of Cana, singing and dancing and and uh, laughing and enjoying themselves thoroughly. And they would come to the home of the bride, and the groom would claim his bride, and he would bring her back to his house. And they would wind their way through the streets of the city, singing and they go back to the house where the wedding would take place. And then instead of a honeymoon, they had a week-long party, a celebration on behalf of the bride and groom. And it was this party to which Jesus and his six disciples were invited. Nathaniel, we know, was from Cana. And perhaps the bridegroom or the bride was his friend. And... We don't know, but uh, for whatever reason, Jesus and his disciples were invited, and Jesus went. One of the things that strikes me about our Lord is, the, in many ways, the ordinary life which he lived. He had three and a half years to do an infinite piece of work, and he uh, spent a, 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 what seems like an inordinate amount of time just uh, what we would call hanging out, just being with his friends. You would think he wouldn't have time to go to a party. But he went to this uh, week week long uh, occasion. There's an old legend that Jesus never smiled. And to me that's an absurdity because human beings smile and Jesus was more human than any of us. He enjoyed occasions like this and i, I you know I, I like to imagine what happened. I think Jesus was off in a corner talking to some of his friends as you often do at uh, parties and his mother wandered over and said, uh, they're out of wine. Now, I don't know what she expected him to do. I, I think what strikes us is what appears to be his very harsh reaction to what she said. Woman, he says, <laughs> what do I have to do with you? <clears throat> now, let me, let me make a, a, a general statement and then try to explain what, what's behind our Lord's remark. I cannot envision our Lord ever saying anything that was dishonoring to his mother. Jesus himself said, I always do those things that please the Father, and what pleased the Father is honoring mother and father. So I just can't envision, no matter how we interpret these statements, that there was any dishonor in what he said. She could, uh, she could read his face, she could read his tone. We can't because we weren't there, but I'm sure there was, there was kindness in this uh, in this response the, the other thing i would say about this response is that actually taking it face value is nothing wrong with it the problem is not with the statement of woman the problem is with our understanding of the word woman that's one of those words in the english language that we have degraded cs lewis points out that uh, there are two words that ought to be the highest and holiest words in a man's mouth they are god and woman and we tend to degrade both the expression, woman driver, is a case in point. You know, it, it just says that there's something intrinsically foolish about women when they get behind a wheel. But there's no evidence that women are any worse drivers than men. As a matter of fact, uh, insurance people tell us just, just the opposite. When you, when you hear the statement that men make, that's just like a woman. I, I, I did not hear that statement made about Margaret Thatcher when she sent the Marines into the Falklands. That's just like a woman. <laughs> that phrase is reserved for, uh, for, the, for, fooli- for the foolishness of certain women. See, there's nothing, nothing intrinsically stupid or foolish or funny about women. But uh, that's just another evidence see, of the degrading of that, of that uh, term. We haven't done that with, with the word man, by the way. Man still signifies dignity. Uh, if you, clap, you slap a man on the back and you say, be a man, you know, you don't have to tell him what that means. He knows. But if you say to a woman, you're acting like a woman, what comes to his mind is that I'm acting in a cowardly fashion, but there's nothing intrinsically cowardly about women. Both men and women are cowardly. See, it's the word that we've denigrated. We've degraded it. Jesus never did that. You wouldn't find that in his mouth. Woman was one of the highest and holiest words that that he could utter. So when he says to her, woman, there was no uh, dishonor. I I like the way the NIV translates it. It translated, dear woman, which softens it a bit. But I think there's even more involved. I think it was a term of, of dignity and worth in Jesus' mouth. The other phrase is a bit more difficult when Jesus says, what, what is there between you and me? That's an idiom It's found in a number of places in both the Old and New Testament. It's a Semitic idiom that, that means, uh, what are, what do we have in common? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you and I are out of sync with one another. We're not tracking. We're not thinking along the same lines. So the question is, what was it that, that Jesus' mother was thinking, and what was Jesus thinking? Because he responded to her request. He did something. So he could not be saying what you asked me to do is wrong. There must be something more going on. And I think there is. Now Mary was a a good Jewish mother. Uh, And we all know good Jewish mothers. I had a good Jewish mother. Carolyn's a good Jewish mother. Uh, Some of you had good Jewish mothers. You know what that's like to have I'll tell you who's a good Jewish mother. Lila Hadley is a good Jewish mother. If you've been watching Channel 7 lately and you've seen Larry McNeely's clips on Ron Hadley, uh, who is our local hero who's playing in the Super Bowl uh, today, and I have to chuckle, I've seen two or three of those clips every time. You know, the camera will pan on Mel and Mel's so calm and prosaic and... Objective about the whole thing, and then the camera will pan on Lila, and she is grinning from here to here. <laughs> Which is why football players always say, Hi mom, on television. <laughs> See, a Jewish mother is someone that really cares about her child and who's just kind of encouraging. I told the story about Isabel Robbie and his mother, and he attributes his success to her to the fact that every time he went off to school, she said, Isabel, did you ask any good questions today? See that someone who just gently pushes and wants the very best the highest for her for her son. And I'm sure Mary was a good Jewish mother, but there was more involved in her request than being a good Jewish mother. Mary knew who Jesus was. She knew. The angel had said your offspring will sit on the throne of David. She knew he was the next king. And I think what Mary was was prompting Jesus to do is to do something dramatic that would manifest himself to the nation as the king. Her intentions were good. Her methodology, in, on, in this particular occasion, was different than Jesus, and that was his concern. I think what Mary may have had in mind was that Jesus, at this point, would stand and he would tap a, the glass with a with a spoon, and he would say, "Excuse me, please, may I have your attention?" And uh, he would say, would you please bring in the water pots? And they'd bring in the water pots, and he'd wave his hands over them and say, hocus pocus, shazam. And out would come uh, wine, and everybody would say, wow, this has got to be the king. This is the one that was promised in the Old Testament. And and what Jesus is saying is, that's just not my way of doing things. It's really striking how reticent Jesus was to work miracles. There's a shyness almost about him that... He didn't want to be observed. As a matter of fact, seven times in the Gospels, whenever he worked a miracle, he told the person on whom the miracle was worked, don't tell anybody. All of his actions seemed to be hidden and behind the scenes and quiet and inobtrusive. There was nothing ostentatious or showy or glitzy about him. There's no showbiz. It was all just down-to-earth acts of goodness. Came out of his concern to do what was what was good, and what did Jesus do? Well, he very quietly went over to the to the servants, and they're the only ones other than the disciples who understood what he was doing. He went over to the servants, and he said, "Fill the water pots with uh, with water all the way to the top." These are water pots that usually were placed beside the door. Uh, the 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 front door by which the guests would enter, and they were used for, for washing purposes, washing hands, washing feet. If you go into a kosher Jewish restaurant today, you'll find these large water pots sitting there to, uh, where you can wash your hands. They were there for purification. Jesus said, fill them up to the brim. Uh, that's about 150 to 180 gallons of water. Uh, there were six of these uh, these pots. and They filled them up, and then he said very quietly to the steward or to the servants, bear it out to the steward and serve it. And they served it and it turned out to be the, the best wine of, of the entire week and nobody knew it except the servants and uh, and his disciples were told that his disciples saw it and his disciples believed in him. Now I want to make some observations about, about this uh, miracle. I want to go back and reinforce the fact that uh that he did this this miracle so quietly. Uh no one no one knew. What a contrast between our Lord on this occasion and some of the televangelists for them is just showbiz. It's gaudy and flashy and pretentious. I've always appreciated Billy Graham's approach to, to ministry. You know, the man just walks up to the microphone and starts to talk and uh, George Beverly Shea doesn't step into the spotlight and flash his Rolex watch and, you know there's no no glitter just very quietly ministers and that's that's characteristic of our lord i the thing that strikes me about this miracle is, is simply this that our lord did it not to show that god is good but simply because god is good that God cares about things like wine at a party. That these small things of life matter to Him. And His concern was not so much to let everybody know that He was God, just stand up and and, and visibly display His power, but, but to quietly reveal something of of His love, but primarily just to let people know that, that He's good. He's good. The, the other thing that that strikes me about this chapter is is our Lord's intent to provide what's good, even if people misuse what He gives. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and He freely bestows these gifts uh, upon us, even though we may misuse them. I, I don't know what people did, you know, how the party went, what people did with the wine. Maybe they drank too much. Maybe maybe they got all got loaded. I don't know, but that didn't seem to be our Lord's concern. He just provided as a manifestation of His, of His goodness. And it's true of all of life. Our Lord gives us our minds. That may be the greatest miracle of all. You know, who can understand how this, this mechanism up here works? It's amazing. He gives us our minds with no strings attached. We can use those minds and uh, we, can, uh, be a, you know, we can be preoccupied with pornography and, and uh, we can think selfish thoughts and we can even use our minds to generate arguments about God and against God. And he, he permits us to do that. And he gives us our bodies and what amazing mechanisms our bodies are. And we can use our bodies for ourselves. We can prostitute them on ourselves we can trash them we can we can do what we please with them and and he he, no strings attached he just gives them and they abuse those children sexually and physically or he gives to a mother a human life and she aborts it and he just gives he keeps on giving even though we misuse those gifts james says he is the giver of every good and and perfect gift With him, there is no variableness or shadow of turning. Everything that comes from his hand is is good. Here's a couple, both of whom have an MBA from a prestigious college. They use uh, that education to just make a lot of money for themselves, to buy cars, to buy condos, to buy expensive clothes, and to go on extravagant vacations. And God continues to give and to give and to give. He puts all those things in their hands and they can misuse them and he doesn't stop the process. And and after a few years, they're they're given a child. And this child is the joy and the delight of, of their life. Do you ever stop and think what a miracle the giving of a child is? We take that for granted. Here's a human being that didn't exist before. And all of a sudden, they exist. Can you imagine what Adam and Eve must have thought when when that first child was born? They'd never seen a, a a child born, and and Eve carried that that child, and and then the child was born. Here was this little pink human being. They'd never seen anything like this before. They must have been ecstatic, even more so than we are when when our children are born. That is a first class miracle, but it's so common uh, commonplace we don't. We don't consider it that way anymore. We, it just seems to be wholly natural. But that's a gift from God, you see. And he gives, he gives, he gives. And what this miracle tells me is that God is concerned about these little matters, little trivial things in our life, and he provides because he loves us so much. Now, some of you are going to be going to Super Bowl parties this afternoon. We are. Some of you could care less. But uh, you, you may be going to, maybe you're throwing one. Well, suppose you, you, you have a Super Bowl party and you gather all your friends, and uh, uh, what, what you don't realize is that God shows up in disguise at your party. He looks just like Gerald Anderson here, but uh, <laughs> it's actually God himself. And uh, Gerald comes in and he sprawls out in front of your TV set and he starts watching the game. And uh, halftime's coming up and you go over to check the refreshment table and you realize that uh, somebody has gobbled up all the sandwiches. There's nothing to eat. And you think, oh no, you know what? What a what a faux pas! What a gaffe! You I invited all these people over uh, for this party and there isn't enough to eat. What am I going to do? And uh, Gerald gets up from the tv set and he wanders over and uh, there's one little dried out sandwich on the plate and he picks it up and he starts to break off a little piece and then another piece and another piece and pretty soon there's this big pile of sandwiches on the plate and then he goes over to the empty bowl of dip and he touches the bowl and it's filled up with dip and potato chips miraculously appear and and, you're, and then he wanders back over and he sits down in front of the TV set again, and nobody sees him but you. What would you think? You see the parallel? There's absolutely no difference. I'll tell you what I would think. I'd love it. I'd love it. Just to think that he cares that much about the small things of life. Now, some of you are thinking, well, it's all well and good, but he hasn't shown up for my party. (laughs) Some of you don't have husbands this year that you had last year for one reason or another. Some of you last year were probably annoyed that your husband watched the Super Bowl, but today you're thinking, boy, I wish I had a husband sitting in front of the television set watching. I'd give anything if he was sitting in front of that television set. Some of you have lost children this past year, and you're, you're wondering, why, why didn't God show up and heal that child? He could do it if he wanted to. Why did that child have to die? He, is he, and not only has he not shown up for my party, he's rained all over my parade. This has not been a good year. Well, let me share two or three thoughts with you that, that, that might help you to understand. In the first place, when, when our Lord came, he did not heal every child. For every person that he healed, there were thousands that were unhealed. For every leper that he touched, there were there were hundreds that went on in their, their terrible disease and, and their disfigurement. For every Lazarus that he raised from the dead, there were hundreds that died. For every person that he fed, there were probably hundreds of thousands who went to bed hungry at, at, at night. He didn't try to heal the world then. It wasn't his purpose. Because the world can't be healed. This whole world has gone too far. It's beyond the point of redemption. The only thing that will reclaim this world is a new heaven and a new earth. One of these days our Lord's going to come back and he's going to fix it all up and then he's going to set everything right. That's our hope. That's what we're waiting for. Let me read something that uh, Isaiah wrote. He's speaking as a prophet, but he's also, uh, God puts these words in the mouth of our Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of our God, that is, the day when our God comes back to avenge himself and to set everything right, to redress all the the ills and the injustices in the world, (laughs) to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Ashes, of course, are a sign of mourning. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they'll be called the oaks of righteousness. That is, there'll be stability. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That, that was the expectation of the Old Testament. When the, when the king came, there'd be no more sickness. There'd be no more sin. There'd be no more blindness. There'd be no more evil in the world. He'd banish all of that. When our Lord came back, uh, came the first time. He went into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he read. He opened the scroll of Isaiah, and he read that portion that I've just read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has set me, uh, sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and proclaim the f- favorable year of the Lord. And then He shut the book. And he sat down, which was the teaching position in those days, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in, in your ears. This is just the beginning. And then our Lord began to work miracles because that's what they expected the Messiah to do when he came back. But they, what they didn't realize is that this was a sort of down payment of the final denouement. Uh, as Helmut Tielecki puts it, these miracles are like, are like signal fires that lead us to the kingdom. There's a time coming when our Lord will give sight to the blind and he'll heal all the deaf and the lame will walk and the prisoners will be set free and our instabilities will be taken away and we'll all become oaks of righteousness. We won't be troubled and shaken anymore by sin. It's coming. It's our hope. And you see, that's, again, what the miracles teach us. That's something of the goodness of God. That's what he wants to do for us and will do for us in time. But what about in the meantime? How do we make it through this life with all of our heartache and our, and our pain? Well, see, it may be that our Lord is not healing every hurt. He's not setting right every wrong because he wants to wean us away from this world and the wine of this world and teach us to drink more deeply of him. That was true of Job. Job was a good man. God said so Himself. But in the end, after all the terrible things that happened to Job, Job said, "I used to, I used to know about you. I'd heard about you, but now I see you. Now I see you." Sometimes the Lord will not work wonders in our life because He has a greater wonder to work. He has a sweeter wine to give us, and when we drink of Him, there is, there's a zest and a fragrance and a sweetness to life that the world cannot provide. I've often said that some of the people that are, that are, that are so greatly used of God are people that have been so, so terribly hurt. It seems to happen that way. Because they're the people that have learned to drink of Christ and find their satisfaction from Him. Now I hope you'll see that as as we look through these miracles, that you will be touched over and over again with the fact of God's goodness that He just wants to give. I have one final note that I want to leave with you. I I have uh, often thought of that phrase: "He saved the best till last," and I'd have to say that's true. That's true. I, I I'd say for myself that Jesus gets sweeter as the days go on. I. This last uh, two or three years, in many ways, have been the hardest years of my life. But uh, don't feel sorry for me, because I don't feel sorry for myself. I've learned more about my Lord's adequacy, and he is sweeter to me than he ever has been before. He's touched these years with grace and with beauty and with a fragrance that I never knew before. And I have to say, he's saved the best till last. I feel like Robert Browning. Come grow old with me. The best is yet to be, the last of life, for which the first was made. Let me read something from Henry Durbinville. Uh, when I went back to Dallas, I picked up some of my uh, mother's uh, books and some of my father's books out of their libraries. And this is an old book by Henry Durbinville. He's an English uh, author of another generation. And uh, he wrote a book on uh, aging, which he calls The Best is Yet to Be. And uh, I was struck by this one paragraph. He says, I feel sorry for folks who don't like to grow old and who are trying all the time to hide the fact that they're growing old and who are ashamed to tell how old they are. I uh, thought of the recent ad with the uh, woman trying to hide her laugh lines and dabbing on uh, oil of delay. (laughs) Durbanville says, I revel in my years. They enrich me. If God should say to me, I will let you begin over again, and you may have your youth back once more, I should say, oh, dear Lord, if you don't mind, I prefer to grow old. I have to say the same thing. You know, the world is always saying that uh, it's youth that are the days of wine and roses. But it isn't true. The best is yet to be. He says, I would not exchange the peace of mind, the abiding rest of soul, the measure of wisdom I have gained from the sweet and bitter and perplexing experiences of life, nor the confirmed faith I now have in the moral order of the universe and in the unfailing mercy and love of God for all the bright and uncertain hopes and tumultuous joys of youth. Indeed, I would not. I have to agree. I wouldn't go back. They couldn't pay me enough to go back. And have to redo all those years again I just want to say again he's good he's good he's even better than you ever thought he's better than you could ever dream or imagine he wants to give let's pray <laughs> Some of you I know are disappointed with God. He hasn't come through for you. And life has turned bitter and and sour and harsh. It's okay to complain. David complained a lot about how hard his life was. It's all right to tell God how you feel. If you feel that, that... He's dealt you a bad hand. Tell him so. Tell him so now. And ask him in in these weeks ahead as we look at these miracles to teach you over and over again how good he truly is. Ask him to satisfy you with that sweet wine that comes from drinking of him. He can restore the relish and the fragrance. And the body and the zest of life. Pray that He'll teach us to drink. Drink of Him, Lord. We uh, we thank you for this reminder again. This vivid, graphic. A picture of your goodness that you would be this concerned about the trivialities of life that you would care enough to do this sort of thing for us makes us, makes us love you more help us to respond to your wooing your calling your courting of us help us to see that that your heart's desire is to see it, see us drawn into, into a relationship with you in which we find all the sweetness that we've been looking for. Teach us that, Lord. Help us to realize that you love us more than we could ever imagine. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.